Welcome to a pivotal moment in tennis history, a moment we are living and witnessing right now. Today, we stand on the brink of a revolution, not just in how the game is played, but how it's understood. Five years ago, when we embarked on this project, we anticipated changes, but what's unfolding is far more dramatic and more powerful than we ever imagined. Gone are the days of solely relying on impressionistic methods and the opinions of tennis gurus. We are now in an era where every shot, every point, and every strategic decision is transformed by the unyielding power of data analytics. This isn't just a change, it's a seismic shift that is redefining the very essence of tennis as we know it. As we experience these monumental changes firsthand, we invite you to join us on this groundbreaking journey. Together, let's discover how data analytics is not just influencing, but revolutionizing the world of tennis. So the Arts of Winning is brought to you by Sterling Strother and Dan Travis. This podcast is dedicated to shedding light on the new era of tennis. It looks at the completely new areas and realms of possibility that this era presents us with. Primarily, we examine the battles that will be fought as the player develops competitive intelligence. We ask you to subscribe to the podcast, both on the channels, Apple, Spotify, and Amazon, and subscribe directly to us by visiting www.artofwinningtennis.com. We can help you negotiate your way around this tremendously exciting new era in tennis. Welcome to podcast number seven, where today we are going to be looking at the interesting area of what, what actually happens in a match. And today we are going to use the opportunity to contrast the art of winning approach on court and in what we might call the, the mental or psychological approach um, that we have with the traditional tennis culture approach and where that that leads us. And what I want to do today is um, Sterling is Sterling's kindly going to ask me some of these more um, more difficult questions, and it's going to be a, it's going to be a slightly different uh, podcast because some of the areas that I've been working in here, and I know Sterling does as well, and some of the things that we've been discussing on this the, these last six years, I find incredibly interesting, and you know they motivate me um, in in the matches, and it was. It was this uh, desire to find out how we can kind of negotiate the pressure of a tennis match in a better way. Because I think, Sterling, you and I, we both felt what was on offer at the time. Look, there was some, there was some strong stuff out there, but it, it, it tend to be almost worshipped. Oh, you know, here's the, here's the book, here's the guide, here's the manual. You read this and, and that's going to work. And it, doesn't, it just didn't happen that way. And I think that we, we, we're looking to build something now that is, I'd say my starting point would be that's more accurate, that is more scientific and much more close, close, closer to the r- reality. And we have the opportunity to do that with data analytics. 
And so today we've got we've got the chance to look at some of these ideas and concepts. And it, again, it will be it will be, be a slightly different kind of discussion because you know, some of this is speculative, and that's a good thing because we're you know we're exploring this and he, as as the days and the week the weeks go on, particularly this year. Um, and we, we want today to get into this idea of concepts of what happens in the match and how we can make that better. Would you would you agree with that, Sterling? Yes. So there's a there's been said that 75 to 80 percent of a match is mental, emotional, and based mm-hmm. on decision making. So with that, let's let's get started, Dan. So the first uh, question would be, what might be actually happening? inside of a player's head in a match okay well i'm gonna i'm gonna move move off that question because you you don't know all you can go on i think or all i i can go on is personal experience um what i've spoken about with other players and experience from competing in other sports there's no way of telling what other players are thinking let alone come up with a theory of what's happening this hasn't stopped me from taking my own experience and talking it through with other players. So I think we have to take a cautious approach to this. That doesn't mean, you know, we're not really firing on all cylinders mentally and we're coming up with a you know scientific approach, but we need to exercise some caution because it's it's too easy to leap to conclusions and start pushing our opinion in far too early without proper research and we'll see this as a flaw with traditional tennis culture not having the data not being able to back up and develop the data so i think you can't get anywhere near certainty or near what you would call um, a scientifically valid claim in the way that people tend to think you can or that the or or that players kind of demand from you give me certainty they say don't they and it's like <laughs> well i Okay, well, good luck with that one. Um, there are several approaches in the positive thinking camp, or the like, the, the how to think like a champion category, and they'll aggressively uh, kind of all predetermine what's going to happen. And it's beyond what we call we call confirmation bias. It results in approaches that end in the demand that look, guys, I'm the expert. I know what's going on up here, and you have to do this. And this is something that I deliberately try and avoid. And instead, I want to use experience and the dialogue with players in a, I'd say, softer and more, a more, more careful approach. And despite the name, the soft and careful approach is uh, that's necessary to prop a strong uh, problem framing. Uh, the, and that's, that's what we discussed in episode five. Right. So, so what is it? that you're looking for specifically so yeah so specifically we what might set them on a pathway to losing a match okay and i'm going to suggest that many players win a match because (laughs) because the other player loses it first (laughs) of course the way the winner still wins and i'm not suggesting that this is any less of an achievement what i'm saying and i hope this does make sense is that the winner often knows that they've only just won. And sometimes they'll take a guess, but it's not really close to the truth about how they won. Certainly because they're quite relieved that they've won. 
And I think they also know that they could easily have lost. That's the situation most, most players are in. But I think this is the first problem. They don't have a clear plan for winning. I'm not saying that they do have a clear plan for winning, that, that even if they do have one, sorry, that they're going to win. But it's going to, a, plan, a plan's going to help, and it's going to help you all the stages that we've discussed, Sterling. So it's going, the plan's going to help you because it's cultivated from the match into the data into the practice court and back into the match again. It completes that circle. That's where the plan is. The plan isn't the reality. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying in that sense it's not a blueprint. And I think that's the first problem. They can go about changing the plan and testing and hopefully they can rehearse new things in practice. And if they go anywhere near our tennis, then the tennis data analytics, then they have a much better chance of doing that. So... Losing with a plan is often better than winning with no plan. Does that sound a bit mad, Sterling? That sounds perfectly reasonable. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's quite counterintuitive because that's where you really learn from the losses. And you you won't learn from your losses if you don't have a plan and you lose. Really, the planning includes. I mean, recur- it includes the rehearsal, the practice court, and I think. Okay, here we go. Winning with, with a plan is, is your best outcome, obviously. Losing with a plan is next. Then there's winning without a plan and finally losing without a plan. And people fall into the trap of thinking that they have, they've won without a plan before, therefore, having, therefore a plan isn't necessary. Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know if you found that. And again, I'm, I'm speculating here. You don't know. But I think um, a lot of the time, well, I don't, I don't need a plan. Often that will come from players who do have a plan, but they just don't recognize it as being one. Every player knows where they want to hit the ball. It is interesting to me that I deal with, obviously I deal with mostly junior players under 22 years old. So when they do win, they almost subscribe the reason why they won to, I was prepared. In other words, I had, and and kind of interpret that as, I had hit enough forehands last week, enough backhands. I've been serving. Yes. I'm improving my serve. I'm improving my my the way I strike the ball. And so they subscribe their winning to I was prepared. And they're not specifically giving the reason to be I had a plan and I executed the plan with my mm. better serve and my better forehand and my better backhand. So it's it's almost like they, you're right. They, it's like they won without a plan because they, they can't really recall exactly how they approached the match from a strategic or tactical perspective. They just kind of leaned on the fact that they're getting better over time. I'm on the look, coach. I'm on the court three or four hours a day. I've got to get better that way. And then I'm going to eventually start winning more. And that's, I don't think that's the best approach. Mm. if you're going to want to achieve a higher level of play. So, yeah. Well, let's continue on with you said you said it uh, are you suggesting that it can work another way than just Yeah, I think I think if we look at how how close tennis matches are, hmm. right? That's the first thing. People just don't understand that. I mean, that's that's one of the points we make in chapter 1 of the book is look there's a problem here because you don't understand the implications of closeness and the closeness of a tennis match. 
Do you think that's a general uh, way that most people approach matches that they just don't realize that it's so close? Well, I'd say it's yeah, it's a perennial problem because they don't understand that they need. You know, if you don't understand how close a tennis match is, then you won't have any mechanisms to deal with that when it occurs. Okay, and you will then that's 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 one problem. So you've got no mechanisms to deal with it. So then you will go into some of the fall into some of the traps that put you on that path, potentially put you on that path to lose it. So can I jump in here with maybe yeah. an example of that? Because I think this is a good time to jump in on this example. Mm-hmm. Not understanding the closeness of a match and then the contrast that with maybe like a set score or what the set score is like when you're playing a match. So I want to go back to an example in the Australian Open this year with two female players. I am going to name their names. I don't name their names because I'm putting down one player or another or exalting one player or another. I'm just giving it as an example that we can just discuss around, right? But it was the match between Iggy Swiatek and Daniel Collins, and they had both split sets, and then they were in the third set, and Daniel Collins goes up 4-1. And it was really interesting because – when you look at that, when you're watching that match as a as an observer, you're going, wow, okay, Daniel's up big in the third. She's 4-1 up. She's two games away from beating the number one player in the world. She's been having trouble beating her in the past. This is this is her chance to break through. And as the commentator was saying, as they were repeating constantly up until this point, her forehand, she's ne- she's hitting her forehand better than she's we've ever seen her hit it late, love late. So it's like man, okay, Daniel can do this, right? And then all of a sudden, Iggy's serving at 1-4 and she wins her serve, which uh, momentum-wise, momentum shift-wise, she's supposed to win that game, right? Like the chances of Daniel going up 5-1 is less of a chance than her staying up 4-2, right? But to me, that's the that's the realization of the closeness of a match, right? You're mm-hmm. up 4-1, you're returning serve, your opponent is down 1-4. They're serving. They should hold. I mean, obviously, we're talking about professional women. They're, Iggy Switek's not going to just go away at this point. She's not going to check out. She's probably been – she's definitely been here in this position before in the past. That's why she's number one. It's because she's able to regroup, right? But so talk, talk to me about maybe – because I saw I saw Danielle sort of go into a confused look. She she yeah. sort of looked like she was a little girl lost. She didn't really know kind of what to do. She missed a few returns that were pretty standard returns. Should have made those at the beginning of that one four game. And it's almost like I don't want to say the wheels came off, but I think the wheels were turning in her head in a way that was just made her look lost. So can you? Yeah, she's going about that as far as like what the the idea of the closeness of the match but then interpreting it as i'm way up but then she didn't seem like she knew what to do next because she's not way up saha plenty of four ones yeah so the so the deception of the score exasperates the the deception of the score exasperates the problem of closeness Hmm. and set scoring is a very common one so the game score in sense of well, four one. So the art of winning four one, four one can be as damaging as yeah as thirty love. So what would you say would be the art of winning approach in this example? There's no such forget four one. 
forget what? for one immediately. Forget for one immediately. Mm. In fact, you wouldn't, you'd note for one. In fact, for one's quite good. For one is a good position to be in. Yes. But it should only be a place marker, is what you're saying. But it has its dangers. And if you are not trained in the art, in, in, in the art of, art of winning. What, what comes across as mental weakness on the part of Danielle in that match is actually a misunderstanding of the positions she's in. And then you hear them going, what she should be doing. And I guarantee you, she'll be telling herself, well, I should be winning from here. And if I don't, blah, blah, blah. However, what she's doing at 4-1 is the same as what she would be doing at 1-4 within the game itself and from point to point, okay, she would be introducing, this is if she was trained in art of winning and tennis data analytics. Okay. She's trained to have a series of hacks, okay? We call, right. them, we call them that. Okay. And the, a hack simply just, oh, it's kind of a slang word to carry out or manage something. Yeah. She's trying to hack into what she really needs to accomplish here to maintain or sustain her momentum. Because obviously at this point, she has the momentum at 4-1, but that can be, you've got to understand the moment, how momentum shifts. It's going to shift somewhat back to Iggy because Iggy's not going away. She's not going to check out. So she's going to compete. Yeah. Okay. So when, 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 the, when the commentators use the term momentum, I kind of go, mm, wince a little bit. Because they're talking about the, they're not talking about the art of winning, right? They aren't. Of momentum. They're not talking about the same thing. They're right. talking about the score, the oh, score, okay. and then they're speculating on what the psychological momentum is. Because momentum doesn't exist as this thing out there. Right? It's a number. It's it not, is a number. Yes. It's not a force. It's more based on the probability of something happen than sort of this like psychological, mental, emotional interpretation looking at like a distorted set score of 4-1. Because the 4-1 doesn't really tell you the whole story of maybe how 4-1 even exists, right? Because every one of those games up to that point were close. Mm-hmm. The score was close in the game score. So it's like she was up 4-1, but she's 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 barely up by four one because she barely won each one of those games, right? And that's not being taken into account. When and you're peculiar, you're peculiarly susceptible at that point. Yes. Start to think about what you should do in this position. Interesting. Okay. Which is different from what you've done before. The art of winning player won't make that. This there's no such rupture. So there's no moving from or into the 4-1 up position because it doesn't exist. There's no, yeah? So there's a reset. They understand the momentum hack. So there's a reset in the art of winning player's mind that goes, okay, I know I'm 4-1. I know it's 4-1, but that's not what I'm, as as I move forward into receiving this next game up 4-1, I'm not going to carry with me that inflated, distorted perception of that I'm up big and I'm almost there. I'm going to sort of leave that alone and then go into my, okay, what is my rehearsal of my first strike return patterns of each one of these points as I return at 4-1, this player serve? Because I know 
they're going to give me hell here. They're going to come at me. They're going to be a little bit more relaxed, kind of, I don't really have anything to lose. Maybe that may, that may be their, that may be their um, mindset. I don't think it's going to get closer. Yeah. I don't think it was Iggy's mindset because she was playing very strategic and hitting big targets and going big shots. And she is trained more in data analytics and how to do that than most women on the tour. I know that for a fact, because I know who's been, who would work with her for a long time, but, and he's, he's knows what he's talking about, but, and knows how to sort of relay the information. So, but yes, the art of winning player is going to assess the situation, the reality of the situation that look, this is going to be a fight till the end. I am most likely going to lose a couple of games in the process of winning at least one or two more games. And so, like I was telling uh, one of my 14 year old girls that I, tr- that I work with on the tennis court and develop her. And we're talking about this match. I'm like, look, she could have, Danielle could have given up three games and still won the set six, four. And uh, my player looked at me and kind of smiled. She goes, wow, you really never think about it like that coach. Mm. I'm like, but I'm thinking about it in a reality sense, not this sort of, you know, fairy tale pixie ducks dusk way that I'm just going to win six, one. No, there's going to be this battle back and forth because of the closeness of how points shift back and forth. So yes, it's, it, that is a, I think that example is a clear one to help maybe the listener today distinguish between what we're talking about as far as the antidote to this emotional, mental sort of generalized, generalized suggestions about how to respond to negative, positive events. You've got to have more of a, you've got to be more in touch cognitively to the to the mental or thinking part of what's actually happening that probability exists here there's a chance you're going to lose this next game being up 4-1 especially if you're returning serve and the and your opponent is a, is it does well at holding serve so you got to be willing to accept that position and then negotiate from that mind mm. headspace right instead of this convoluted thinking of I'm two games away and I just need to press in or stay positive or right. That's so vague and just not attached to reality. It's sort of, you're sort of living on that in that magical space, headspace of I'd like to see this happening. I'm, I'm hoping and wishing, but uh, anyway, so let's, we can move forward. I think anything else on that before we move on? No, it's a, it's, you know, it's it's a fascinating discussion, and um, you can see from or you can hear from the commentary how traditional tennis culture approaches this because everyone okay. everyone will agree with everyone else. You know, oh yeah, it's, that's the problem. Okay, so let's go into the next session, which is really common approaches to matches. Can you take us, Dan, through a match and help us understand what may be going on? inside of a player's head so i think it it starts before the match and i think most players have in their mind that their job is to prevent a kind of technical collapse of their shots mm-hmm. you hear the word breakdown i hope my forehand doesn't break down today or my backhand doesn't break down and so on so i think the first priority is and, and look a lot of the time, they go, well, I've done a lot of work on this. You know, as you said at the beginning, Sterling, 
you know, I've hit my 2,000 balls this <laughs> in preparation for this match. Okay. So Should be I've, done my be- I've, done, I've done my best. <laughs> then I think as, you, as we go into the match, when you've got that technical thing in your head and experiences, you know, it not collapsing, the next thing that can happen is inevitably you're going to lose some points. So one, you're going to blame yourself for those because you'll judge yourself in in a certain way. But also there's what happens, and we've, we have subjected this to experiment and testing. You know, this has been looked at scientifically. You will exaggerate your opponent's shots and how effective they are. So if a winner occurs, you'll certainly rate your opponent's shots better than yours. It can go the other way. But I'm just suggesting a particular part here because we don't have time to look at every possible ramification that goes in through people's heads. There is a relationship to the score, particularly the game score. So the player will see it as re- you know reality. They'll see the sort of set the set score, the game, the score within the game as well. It's a sprint. It's a sprint to the end. And or the, the players uh, trying to desire the sprint is what you're saying. They're trying to yes. get through the game quickly. Yeah, gets the end. They're comfortable with giving away Love 30 a lot of the time because there's still time, isn't yeah. there, to correct that approach. And then we have uh, a subject in the discussion for geeks at the end of the, of, of the book, and I wanted to mention it today, is what we call the parasitic processing and the, and the problem of when something bad happens, or we interpret we interpret something as bad. So these are the thought patterns that I've observed happening in players, certainly you know, for myself. And and obviously there are others. Obviously we're not we're not all the same, but those are particularly interesting. So I think I'd say that players don't really they really be, they really come unstuck on the technical, having that stopping technical breakdown and at the same time being unprepared, first misunderstanding and then not being able to handle the closeness of the match and going for the game score and clinging on to that. Okay, so let's talk about handling the negative events like you're talking about during a match, the things that might we might interpret as bad, going wrong. So what can be done to offset these negative events or what we're interpreting as bad events? Yeah, so, so within the, the parasitic processing model, a, a rehearsed and conscious cognitive response to events, making decisions from point to point, but making consistent decisions based on the hacks that we were talking about, based on the rehearsal. You have to train yourself to be able to handle disappointment in that way as well. And that's what the hacks do. Players will get down on themselves because they cannot handle this disappointment because they're constantly judging themselves based on the reality that, that, that's, that isn't really there. So what, what you've been doing on the practice school will soon, it's going to soon evaporate if your practice, it doesn't address the important priorities and they've been misidentified. This is a great point because I want to go back to our example of uh, Switek and Collins match because what I noticed, because I was actually doing the data in the yeah. third set, 
And what I noticed when Iggy started coming back and went at 4-2, went at 4-3, tied up at 4-all, Collins, her errors were localized. They were not chaotic, right? If you go, if you under, go back to listen to a few other podcasts we've done before this, if this is your first one, but we talked about the localization of errors and where the majority of the errors occur. It was interesting when Collins got the serve back and she was up 4-2, at least two of the points she played in the next game, yeah, maybe three, but I know two of the points she missed S1s. She would serve, return would come back. It wasn't like it was a tremendously difficult uh, shot to handle, right? Iggy's bright. She's coming back through the middle. There's no like, she's Iggy Swiatek was not shredding the lines on her return of serve here at ding down for two, four. And so Collins was just almost like you could say she was missing that random S1 shot. She's going for too much. But this goes back to the art of winning, rehearsing your S and S1 patterns and going into that game going, you know what? I'm going to serve it here. This is my position at deuce. I'm going to go to three or four or one. And then I'm the next shot's going into C or the next shot's going into A. And then you've rehearsed that. And it just seemed like to me that that was, that was what was missing from my perspective, looking at the data, because I could see her, her errors were localized in, and it happened. It, Four two, four three, four four. She kept missing returns, R ones. This is Danielle. Returns, R ones, S ones. The points were not long. If you watch that match in the third set, they were very short. So, so the first, the, so, so the first strike is yes, is yeah, it's causing the problem. Yeah, she. It's it's almost like you know the art of winning. That's why we stress that the art of winning. Your first strike patterns and sequences you need to rehearse them and rehearse them in the context of maybe a competitive intelligence game, or even if you're just playing regular scoring, right? 15, 30, 40, but you, and you've got to do it in the context of the momentum score. Like what, what first strike pattern do I execute when I'm up plus two, 30 all instead of minus one, 30 all. Those are two different scenarios. But the only reason they're different is because you're taking into account the momentum score. So this is really, I think, you know, giving these these examples, these real life examples and, and recent examples like the Switek Collins match, I think really emphasizes what we're trying to say here. I want to talk to you, move on to the next section of today's podcast and talk about the importance of having or even changing a plan. So I know that you know, having a plan is crucial. Yes. But then having the flexibility in the strategy can also be beneficial. So what about changing the plan? Let's talk about that. Yeah. Okay. There are a couple of rules about changing plans. Okay. It wouldn't really happen with an art of tennis player because there's no change. Only what adjustments or modifications to the plan. Yeah. You're not okay. changing the plan in the same way as a non-art winning player is doing. because. Okay. What they interpret as a change of plan is, is, is not what we're talking about. Because, we, because the art of winning player uh, is rehearsed and it's got these, these, the hacks at their disposal, then a change is actually a, is a small calibrated adjustment, okay? And that can be tested in the point, right, whether that works or not, okay? So if you look at the kind of change of plan that – that is discussed 
And again, I think the commentators will give it away. They're talking, oh, they need to change plan here, they need to change gear. But that's never really described. I mean, what are your options here? What is your, what is your option if you're going to change your plan? What does it mean? Okay, they vaguely talk about moving forward. Okay. Yeah, don't know. They say, oh, they need, if it can move forward. Well, really? It's it's an odd thing to talk, talk about because it, that's all it is. You can, okay. Again, it's, that's the awesome thing. If you know how to move forward and on which ball to move forward on, right? Like, what yes. is the guess? Advice? It's not based on, any, on, on anything, and it means nothing, really. It's um, very, very general suggestion. It's not that it's wrong, it's just the contextual yeah. overlay that needs well, it's to It's about be like saying he's got to play, they, you know, that, it's about like saying they've got to play better. Right. It's about as thin as that, I think. But the other ones they talk about are, well, he needs to raise the first serve percentage and then they need to do things like, uh, well, they don't talk about, they don't really talk about return of serve as such. They certainly really don't talk about uh, the first strike being a problem. So it's, it's, it's nearly always making the first serve better. And we know where that goes, Sterling. They're kind of impressed. It's hard. They don't. They, they, the commentators don't don't really really pick up on on the first strike. They don't pick up on on the closeness. They certainly don't don't understand the fine tuning, the tweaking that we're talking about, the art of winning. That's not there. It, but it's these kind of vague terms, and it you know this 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 kind of is reflected in the psychology of tennis. It's like oh well, you've got to be more positive. Okay. You know, they're, they're resort to cliche essentially. I mean, who, who disagreed with that? You know, well, I, well, does the art of winning method require a change of plan, like what you're talking about with traditional tennis culture? I thought about this. My first answer was, yeah, well, you can change plan with the art of winning, but no, it doesn't. It's not that. It's not that way of thinking, right? You know, this is this is rehearsed. You know what to do if you're on if you're an art winning player. Or know what to try, okay? Because you're, but look, knowing the probabilities, knowing momentum and the probabilities, extremely powerful for you. It gives you that continuity that we were discussing in the last uh, in in podcast number six, okay? So, well, that's an interesting thing to say because I'm going to go back to the Coco match I watched, yeah, last week. You know, when Coco was down one five in the first set. She's playing a Ukrainian, Krishna, I think is who it was. I can't pronounce her name, my bad. But um, she's down 1-5 in the first set. And then to that point, I watched that whole set. She was very, Coco was very erratic. She was all over the place with her shot selection. It's almost like at 1-5, she's down. It's almost like she had rehearsed. She got into rehearsing. She got into actually executing a rehearsed pattern. Like every serve after every serve, her S1 went to C. So whether she's serving a deuce, she ser- hits position one, she goes to C. She plays out the point. Then she goes to serve to add. Let's say she hits seven or eight, which is a wide serve. She yeah. next ball, she goes to C. It was so, it looked like a rehearsed plan. Like she actually had done this enough in, in her practices and or even maybe the practice before she played this match and she reverted back to it, right? So that's what we're talking about here. It's yeah. almost like 
she made sure that before she played this match, she had these rehearsed and match experience options available to her. And these first strike sequences that she knew, and she almost like defaulted back to them. And then she won 5-2, 5-3, 5-4, 5-5. She ties it up. She goes ahead, 6-5, loses the next game, goes in a tiebreaker, wins the first set after being down 1-5. So she went from this position of uncertainty and her patterns are all over the place in her first strike. And I'm specifically talking about first strike and then the next two shots after that patterns of play. Those first three or four shots, she went from all over the place to a very tactical response. Yes. And you could see the stability come over her per- persona. Like she was much more calm. She got that, that classic Coco golf poker face. She wasn't looking at her box. She wasn't looking for excuses. She just kind of went into herself and it was, she clicked into those rehearsed first strike patterns. This is what I observe. Now I'm not saying that's actually what happened. That's the way they, they, uh, her coaching staff and herself did it. I don't know. Cause I don't, I don't, I haven't talked to Brad Gilbert. I don't know what they're doing over there. I know they're working on their serve and I know Andy Roddick's been helping her with her serve, but I don't know what the tactical application that, that they're trying to, to execute there, but this is what I observe. And it was very clear to me And maybe there's some confirmation bias there from my perspective. Yes. Okay. However, I am using real numbers here. I'm using data analytics. I'm using the science of this, where she's hitting the shot, when she's hitting the shot there, and basing my opinion and my commentary on that. I'm not just looking at it from Sterling's opinionated perspective, although I have one, obviously, but I'm trying to lean in on the art of winning principles here and to assess a real uh, like or get a real assessment, an assessment that's based on reality, not just Mm -hmm. some something I'm perceiving from just my opinion. So um, you get quite a good. I think the best explanation I can give is chapter nine in the book where you've got you've got the plan in the way we conceive it. Well, that's the closest we can get i think at the moment to say look that's it and that's why we wrote chapter nine is you know it's it's quite short but um yeah and i and i think you that's a good point because this is something that we are growing in just here at the art of winning just you and i and then just the one the coaches we talk with and the players that we work with this is an ongoing process it's not like we've concluded we have a conclusion of how matches can be played in a certain way. So this takes us, I think, cleanly into the last section today we're going to talk about. And um, we, you talk a lot about this in the book, Dan. Mm-hmm. You wrote this section in the discussion for Geeks Chapter. The idea of parasitic processing in matches. Can you mm-hmm. explain this concept and its impact on players' performance? Okay. so. The a, su- a summary of parasitic processing would be that it's a cognitive process that where you think or convince yourself that the probability of bad things continuing to happen and getting worse is inevitable, and that that is triggered accidentally by your interpreting an event in a tennis match 
as being a bad event. What then happens is you pick from your memory, okay, these um, heuristics or hacks, as we we called them earlier, can work against you. And what it, what happens is your memory feeds examples of other things that have gone wrong or particular instances on the tennis court. Oh, my forehand's going wrong again. Yeah. This is when it's gone wrong before. Okay. And it'll do things like pick from your memory um, representations of it going badly wrong. So we can then start to imagine it going wrong for us. And the, when we're in that state, we then go in, we've got things compounded by what we call confirmation bias. So you're looking for things on the court that confirm the fact that it's going bad, but also the other things that you've done badly. Obviously, if you're in this position, you've trained in the wrong way. Your coach has told you the wrong thing. Your parents have said the wrong thing. You ate the wrong thing throughout the week and so on. These accumulate and you'll find confirmations of these everywhere when you're on the tennis court, okay? Look, the impact of that, people can experience that in different degrees or different intensity. But even if it's a, a light intensity, you can, you'll start to see or you can't escape this trap of the probability of you ending up losing and it going wrong has increased. And it's increased from the way you, the way you see it simply because you're surrounded by these examples of everything going. It's almost impossible, we've tried this, to think positive thoughts or see something, seeing a good outcome when you're in a bad state. So you can't remember, for example, for example, being happy when you are sad. Right. And equally, when you're sad, very difficult to remember. That's the problem here. Very difficult to remember when you're happy. So this parasitic processing occurs and it increases, in your mind, increases the probability of you losing. Some other quick notes about parasitic processing would be that it's a perennial problem. It happens to everyone and can happen at any time. You, you, you have to kind of circumvent parasitic processing. You have to kind of like outsmart it with different hacks, okay, and different and, and different things. It's a big topic and something that I really like. I'm, I'm, I'm working with developing um, more about parasitic processing. It's not, it's not rigid in the sense that uh, some of the psychological theories that we were, you know, describing earlier can be. Would but you say a, is a that example, example of this parasitic processing would be like a junior player after they make an error go. This always happens. I've done this. This happens all the time. What would you say would be a hack to that? Good, good question. Good. Yeah, that's a good question. Give a good example of that. Okay, so the number one example, this is the first way of counteracting a hack with another one, right? With reason. So I go, because that would be the first thing that happens. This always happens. It's happening again, right? It goes to, it's happening again, so it always happens. Here's, my, here's the response is you get them to question, hang on a minute, does it always happen? Hmm. Okay. And when you just think about it, that's the pause in the thinking. 
All right, you've got to hit this cognitive descent with. Okay, and then when uh, they with, come to that realization, this doesn't always happen. Now, what's the next step? What's what this next thing they they want to think about or turn okay. their attention to? Yeah. So what we need so so there we stop the wheel, if you like. Yeah, or temporarily we've we've stopped it. And here's here's the danger with the parasitic processing because it can get quite brutal on you. You wanna you wanna leave this this negative, okay? And what what can what can happen is the player will what we can check out. They check out of of the point of of the match, okay? So they lose the tension. Something you've spoken about. So what? Keeping the tension and preparing for closeness. That's the second thing is the rehearsal. So you ask the question, does it always happen? No, actually, and you'll conclude all all the time it doesn't. It's literally your mind playing tricks on you. So, yeah, we need to understand that the the match is close, but preparing for that closeness on the practice court, and here we go, what you need to do is demystify your opponent. Okay, it's the opponent that ultimately sets the context of the match. This is what everyone misses in everything that's ever written about tennis psychology. Okay, that the opponent sets the context, but you can set the context of your opponent. I see. Right. So the opponent's going to set the context, whether you're able to, 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 to have any influence over that or not. Okay, but you can contextualize this. You can at least work with it. So you want as a player to obviously recognize, wait a minute, this doesn't always happen. Yeah. And then go into contextualizing yourself what the meaning of the match is at that point. Look, it's a close match. I'm going to make errors. I've got to now regroup before I serve or return the next point. I am I am going into my, re- my rehearsal planning stage of, okay, I'm going to put my serve here. I'm going to put my last one here. I'm going to put my return here. I'm going to put my R1 there. That's your first strike. So going into that thinking about the process of my opponent is not better than me right now. I am just in a battle and I need to regroup. And then let's get here to the moment of the next two shot sequence. That's a good way to sort of, or it's really a crude way of the way we described it, of sort of instigating a change in, in headspace. Right. From this, all this always happens to wait a minute. This doesn't always happen and go into that planning stage. So, well, let's let's go in. Let's kind of tidy this up today. Our podcast. Let's what are you what do you think are some of the key takeaways that someone listening today can can take away from today's discussion? Read chapter nine of The Art of Winning again. And I don't mean that um, facetiously. I do mean that. Did it? That's. That's going to be an indication of how you can move forward and what we're going to do at the Art of Winning. Because, yeah, it gives, it'll give you some, some idea, some framework, um, and it's not too heavy. It doesn't go on, you know, chapter nine is only one chapter, and it's a short one, rather than 20 chapters about your emotional self and discovery. Right? It's, it's, it's relevant. But it also means that you're standing a better chance of winning the match. So. That's what I would say that, that we need to do and start to cultivate a more critical, say suspicious approach to the way traditional tennis 
thinking goes about kind of putting these problems to you, right? You want to be, hang on a minute. I don't, you know, is that really true? You know, give it, give, it's, it's like doing parasitic processing. Is it really true hmm. that, it, that this happens all the time? You know, you, you should take a, a, a critical science, not, not, not a cynical one, but a critical one, I think, of, of commentary and the, and the noise that traditional tennis culture has, yeah? We can, we, you can penetrate that layer a lot more. Get used to tennis data analytics, right? The, nu- the numbers do not lie, right? There's no speculation. You need to be more, more scientific about what you do. Um, and being close to the numbers and the data are the antidote. Is that your word? I think it is. That's your antidote, cognitive antidote, to what traditional tennis culture and tennis psychology tries to do. But I think, I think we're starting to do more effectively. That's great, Dan. Well, let's, uh, if you want, if you're listening today and you want more information about The Art of Winning, you go to theartofwinningtennis.com. You can also find our new book on Amazon, The Art of Winning Tennis, and that's in paperback. It's also an Audible. We encourage you to get the Audible version and uh, listen to that. Uh, definitely take some notes. You're going to have to read probably that book a few times to sort of really get the depth that we're trying to go into. Um, it's not a heady depth, right? It's not just in your head. It's not a difficult thing to understand. It's just there's so much common sense to me that what we've tried to take as a complicated situation, because tennis is a complicated game, we try to phrase it in a way that's it's simple to understand, but yet there's depth to it. So yes, definitely uh, hit us up on the website. If you want to get in touch with Dan or I, you can obviously find us online as well. So thanks, Dan. This was a great podcast today. I hope. No, thank you. And uh, we will look forward to the next one. Thanks.